Part Six of Enchantress of Venus by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Six. He looked suddenly at Stark, and his eyes had in them a clear sanity for all their feyness. You heard, Stark. We made those stand tall and straight who came crooked from the egg. I will have my hour. I will stand as a man for the little time that is left." He turned, and Stark made no move to follow. He watched Trion's twisted body recede, white against the red dusk, until it passed the monstrous watcher and came to the black door. The long, thin arms reached up and pushed the bar away. The door swung slowly back. Through the opening Stark glimpsed a chamber that held a structure of crystal rods and disks mounted on a frame of metal, the whole thing glowing and glittering with a restless bluish light that dimmed and brightened as though it echoed some vast pulse-beat. There were other apparatus, intricate banks of tubes and condensers, but this was the heart of it, and the heart was still alive. Trion passed within and closed the door behind him. Stark drew back some distance from the door and its guardian, crouched down and set his back against the wall. He thought about the apparatus. Cosmic rays, perhaps, the unseen force that comes from beyond the sky. Even yet all their potentialities were not known. But a few luckless spacemen had found that under certain conditions they could do amazing things to human tissue. It was a line of thought Stark did not like at all. He tried to keep his mind away from Trion entirely. He tried not to think at all. It was dark there in the corridor, and very still, and the shapeless horror sat quiet in the doorway and waited with him. Stark began to shiver, a shallow animal twitching of the flesh. He waited. After a while he thought Trion must be dead, but he did not move. He did not wish to go into that room to see. He waited. Suddenly he leaped up, cold sweat bursting out all over him. A crash had echoed down the corridor, a clashing of shattered crystal and a high singing note that trailed off into nothing. The door opened. A man came out, a man tall and straight and beautiful as an angel. A strong-limbed man with Trion's face, Trion's tragic eyes. And beyond him the chamber was dark. The pulsing heart of power had stopped. The door was shut and barred again. Trion's voice was saying, There are records left and much of the apparatus, so that the secret is not lost entirely. Only it is out of reach. He came to Stark and held out his hand. Let us fight together, as men. And do not fear, I shall die long before this body changes." He smiled, the remembered smile that was full of pity for all living things. I know, for the winds have told me. Stark took his hand and held it. Good, said Trion. And now lead on, stranger with the fierce eyes. For the prophecy is yours, and the day is yours, 
and I, who have crept about like a snail all my life, know little of battle. Lead, and I will follow." Stark fingered the collar around his neck. "'Can you rid me of this?' Trion nodded. "'There are tools and acid in one of the chambers.' He found them and worked swiftly, and while he worked Stark thought smiling, and there was no pity in that smile at all. They came back at last into the temple, and Trion closed the entrance to the catacombs. It was still night, for the square was empty of slaves. Stark found Egil's weapon where it had fallen on the ledge where Egil died. "'We must hurry,' said Stark. "'Come on.' The island was shrouded heavily in mist and the blue darkness of the night. Stark and Trion crept silently among the rocks until they could see the glimmer of torchlight through the window slits of the power station. There were seven guards, five inside the blockhouse, two outside to patrol. When they were close enough Stark slipped away, going like the shadow, and never a pebble turned under his bare foot. Presently he found a spot to his liking and crouched down. A sentry went by not three feet away, yawning and looking hopefully at the sky for the first signs of dawn. Trion's voice rang out, the sweet, unmistakable voice, "'Ho there, guards!' The sentry stopped and whirled around. Off around the curve of the stone wall someone began to run, his sandals thud-thudding on the soft ground, and the second guard came up. "'Who speaks?' one demanded. "'The Lord Trion?' They peered into the darkness, and Trion answered, Yes. He had come forward far enough so that they could make out the pale blur of his face, keeping his body out of sight among the rocks and the shrubs that sprang up between them. Make haste, he ordered. Bid them open the door there. He spoke in breathless jerks, as though spent. A tragedy, a disaster. Bid them open. One of the men leaped to obey, hammering on the massive door that was kept barred from the inside. The other stood goggle-eyed, watching. Then the door opened, spilling a flood of yellow torchlight into the red fog. "'What is it?' cried the men inside. "'What has happened?' "'Come out!' gasped Trion. "'My cousin is dead. The Lord Egil is dead, murdered by a slave.' He let that sink in. Three or more men came outside into the circle of light and their faces were frightened as though somehow they feared they might be held responsible for this thing. "'You know him,' said Trion, "'the great black-haired one from Earth. He, he has slain the Lord Egil and got away into the forest, and we need all extra guards to go after him, since many must be left to guard the other slaves who are mutinous. You uh, and you—' He picked out the four biggest ones. "'Go at once to join the search. I will stay here with the others.' It nearly worked. The four took a hesitant step or two, and then one paused and said doubtfully, "'But, my lord, it is forbidden that we leave our posts for any reason, any reason at all, my lord. The Lord Cond would slay us if we left this place.' "'And you fear the Lord Cond more than you do me,' said Trion philosophically. "'Ah, oh, well, I understand.' He stepped out, full into the light. A gasp went up, and then a startled yell. 
The three men from inside had come out armed only with swords, but the two sentries had their shock weapons. One of them shrieked, "'It is a demon who speaks with Creon's voice!' and the two black weapons started up. Behind them Stark fired two silent bolts in quick succession, and the men fell safely out of the way for hours. Then he leaped for the door. He collided with two men who were doing the same thing. The third had turned to hold Trion off with his sword until they were safely inside. Seeing that Trion, who was unarmed, was in danger of being spitted on the man's point, Stark fired between the two lunging bodies as he fell and brought the guard down. Then he was involved in a thrashing tangle of arms and legs, and a lucky blow jarred the shock weapon out of his hand. Trion added himself to the fray. Pleasuring in his new strength, he caught one man by the neck and pulled him off. The guards were big men and powerful, and they fought desperately. Stark was bruised and bleeding from a cut mouth before he could get in a finishing blow. Someone rushed past him into the doorway. Trion yelled. Out of the tail of his eye Stark saw the Elhari sitting dazed on the ground. The door was closing. Stark hunched up his shoulders and sprang. He hit the heavy panel with a jar that nearly knocked him breathless. It slammed open and there was a cry of pain and the sound of someone falling. Stark burst through, to find the last of the guards rolling every which way over the floor. But one rolled over onto his feet again, drawing his sword as he rose. He had not had time before. Stark continued his rush without stopping. He plunged headlong into the man before the point was clear of the scabbard, bore him over and down, and finished the man off with savage efficiency. He leaped to his feet, breathing hard, spitting blood out of his mouth, and looked around the control room, but the others had fled, obviously to raise the warning. The mechanism was simple. It was contained in a large black metal oblong about the size and shape of a coffin, equipped with grids and lenses and dials. It hummed softly to itself. But what its source of power was Stark did not know. Perhaps those same cosmic rays harnessed to a different use. He closed what seemed to be a master switch, and the humming stopped, and the flickering light died out of the lenses. He picked up the slain guard's sword and carefully wrecked everything that was breakable. Then he went outside again. Trion was standing up, shaking his head. He smiled ruefully. It seems that strength alone is not enough, he said. One must have skill as well. The barriers are down, said Stark. The way is clear. Trion nodded, and went with him back into the sea. This time both carried shock weapons taken from the guards, six in all, with eagles, total armament for war. As they forged swiftly through the red depths, Stark asked, what of the people of Sharun? How will they fight? Trion answered, Those of Malthor's breed will stand for the Elhari. They must, for all their hope is there. The others will wait until they see which side is safest. They would rise against the Elhari if they dared, for we have brought them only fear in their lifetimes. But they will wait and see. Stork nodded. 
He did not speak again. They passed over the brooding city, and Stark thought of Egil and of Malthor, who were part of that silence now, drifting slowly through the empty streets, where the little currents took them, wrapped in their shrouds of dim fire. He thought of Zareth, sleeping in the Hall of Kings, and his eyes held a cold, cruel light. They swooped down over the slave barracks. Trion remained on watch outside. Stark went in, taking with him the extra weapons. The slaves still slept. Some of them dreamed and moaned in their dreaming, and others might have been dead, with their hollow faces white as skulls. Slaves! One hundred and four, counting the women. Stark shouted out to them, and they woke, starting up on their pallets, their eyes full of terror. Then they saw who it was they called them, standing collarless and armed, and there was a great surging and a clamor that stilled as Stark shouted again, demanding silence. This time Helvi's voice echoed his. The tall barbarian had wakened from his drugged sleep. Stark told him very briefly all that happened. "'You are freed from the collar,' he said. This day you can survive or die as men and not slaves." He paused, then asked, "'Who will go with me into Sharoon?' They answered with one voice, the voice of the Lost Ones, who saw the red pall of death begin to lift from over them. The Lost Ones, who had found hope again. Stark laughed. He was happy. He gave the extra weapons to Helvi and three others that he chose, and Helvi looked into his eyes and laughed too. Trion spoke from the open door. They are coming! Stark gave Helvi quick instructions and darted out, taking with him one of the other men. With Trion they hid among the shrubbery of the garden that was outside the hall, patterned and beautiful, swaying its lifeless brilliance in the lazy drifts of fire. The guards came, twenty of them, tall, armed men, to turn out the slaves for another period of labor, dragging the useless stones. And the hidden weapons spoke with their silent tongues. Eight of the guards fell inside the hall. Nine of them went down outside. Ten of the slaves died with blazing collars before the remaining three were overcome. Now there were twenty swords among ninety-four slaves, counting the women. They left the city and rose up over the dreaming forest, a flight of white ghosts with flames in their hair, coming back from the red dusk and the silence to find the light again. Light and vengeance. The first pale glimmer of dawn was sifting through the clouds as they came up among the rocks below the castle of the Elhari. Stark left them, and went like a shadow up the tumbled cliffs to where he had hidden his gun on the night he had first come to Sharoon. Nothing stirred. The fog lifted up from the sea like a vapor of blood, and the face of Venus was still dark. Only the high clouds were touched with pearl. Stark returned to the others. He gave one of his shock weapons to a swamplander with a cold madness in his eyes. Then he spoke a few final words to Helvi and went back with Trion under the surface of the sea. Trion led the way. 
He went along the face of the submerged cliff, and presently he touched Stark's arm and pointed to where a round mouth opened in the rock. It was made long ago, said Trion, so that the Elhari and their slavers might come and go and not be seen. Come, and be very quiet. They swam into the tunnel mouth and down the dark way that lay beyond, until the lift of the floor brought them out of the sea. Then they felt their way silently along, stopping now and again to listen. Surprise was their only hope. Trion had said that with the two of them they might succeed. More men would surely be discovered, and meet a swift end at the hands of the guards. Stark hoped Trion was right. They came to a blank wall of dressed stone. Trion leaned his weight against one side, and a great block swung slowly around on a central pivot. Guttering torchlight came through the crack. By it Stark could see that the room beyond was empty. They stepped through, and as they did so a servant in bright silks came yawning into the room with a fresh torch to replace the one that was dying. He stopped in mid-step, his eyes widening. He dropped the torch, his mouth opened to shape a scream, but no sound came, and Stark remembered that these servants were tongueless, to prevent them from telling what they saw or heard in the castle, Trion said. The man spun about and fled, down a long, dim-lit hall. Stark ran him down without effort. He struck once with the barrel of his gun, and the man fell and was still. Trion came up. His face had a look almost of exaltation, a queer shining of the eyes that made Stark shiver. He led on through a series of empty rooms, all somber black, and they met no one else for a while. He stopped at last before a small door of burnished gold. He looked at Stark once and nodded, and thrust the panels open and stepped through. They stood inside the vast echoing hall that stretched away into darkness until it seemed there was no end to it. The cluster of silver lamps burned as before, and within their circle of radiance the Elhari started up from their places and stared at the strangers who had come in through their private door. Cond and Arel, with her hands idle in her lap, Bore pummeling the little dragon to make it hiss and snap, laughing at its impotence, Vara stroking the winged creature on her wrist, testing with her white finger the sharpness of its beak, and the old woman with a scrap of fat meat halfway to her mouth. They had stopped, frozen, in the midst of these actions, and Trion walked slowly into the light. "'Do you know me?' he said. A strange shivering ran through them. Now as before the old woman spoke first, her eyes glittering with a look as rapacious as her appetite. "'You are Trion,' she said, and her whole vast body shook. The name went crying and whispering off around the dark halls. Trion, Trion, Trion. Cond leaped forward, touching his cousin's straight, strong body with hands that trembled. You have found it, he said, the secret. Yes. Trion lifted his silver head and laughed. A beautiful ringing bell tone that rang from the echoing corners. 
I found it, and it's gone, smashed beyond your reach forever. Egil is dead, and the day of the El-Hari is done. There was a long, long silence, and then the old woman whispered, You lie! Trion turned to Stark. Ask him, the stranger who came bearing doom upon his forehead. Ask him if I lie. Khan's face became something less than human. He made a queer, crazed sound and flung himself at Trion's throat. Bor screamed suddenly. He alone was not much concerned with the finding or the losing of the secret, and he alone seemed to realize the significance of Stark's presence. He screamed, looking at the big dark man, and went rushing off down the hall, crying for the guard as he went, and the echoes roared and racketed. He fought open the great doors, and ran out, and as he did so, the sound of fighting came through from the compound. The slaves, with their swords and clubs, with their stones and shards of rock, had come over the wall from the cliffs. Stark had moved forward, but Trion did not need his help. He had got his hands around Khan's throat, and he was smiling. Stark did not disturb him. The old woman was talking, cursing, commanding, choking on her own apoplectic breath. Arel began to laugh. She did not move, and her hands remained limp and open in her lap. She laughed and laughed, and Vara looked at Stark and hated him. "'You're a fool, wild man,' she said. "'You would not take what I offered you, so you shall have nothing, only death.' She slipped the hood from her creature and set it straight at Stark. Then she drew a knife from her girdle and plunged it into Trion's side. Trion reeled back. His grip loosened and conned tore away, half-throttled, raging, his mouth flecked with foam. He drew his short sword and staggered in upon Trion. Furious wings beat and thundered around Stark's head, and talons were clawing for his eyes. He reached up with his left hand and caught the brute by one leg and held it. Not long, but long enough to get a clear shot at Khan that dropped him in his tracks. Then he snapped the falcon's neck. He flung the creature at Vara's feet and picked up the gun again. The guards were rushing into the hall now at the lower end, and he began to fire at them. Trion was sitting on the floor. Blood was coming in a steady trickle from his side but he had the shock weapon in his hands, and he was still smiling. There was a great, boiling roar of noise from outside. Men were fighting there, killing, dying, screaming their triumph or their pain. The echoes raged within the hall, and the noise of Stark's gun was like a hissing thunder. The guards, armed only with swords, went down like ripe wheat before the sickle, but there were many of them too many for Stark and Trion to hold for long. The old woman shrieked and shrieked, and was suddenly still. Helvi burst in through the press with a knot of collared slaves. The fight dissolved into a whirling chaos. Stark threw his gun away. He was afraid now of hitting his own men. 
he caught up a sword from a falling guard and began to hew his way to the barbarian. Suddenly Trion cried his name. He leaped aside, away from the man he was fighting, and saw Vara fall with the dagger still in her hand. She had come up behind him to stab, and Trion had seen and pressed the trigger stud just in time. For the first time there were tears in Trion's eyes. A sort of sickness came over Stark. There was something horrible in this spectacle of a family destroying itself. He was too much the savage to be sentimental over Vara, but all the same he could not bear to look at Trion for a while. Presently he found himself back to back with Helvi, and as they swung their swords, the shock weapons had been discarded for the same reason as Stark's gun, Helvi panted. It has been a good fight, my brother. We cannot win, but we can have a good death which is better than slavery. It looked as though Helvi was right. The slaves, unfortunately, weakened by their long confinement, wore out by overwork, were being beaten back. The tide turned, and Stark was swept out with it into the compound, fighting stubbornly. The great gate stood open. Beyond it stood the people of Sharoon, watching, hanging back, as Trion had said. They would wait and see. In the forefront, leaning on his stick, stood Larrabee the Earthman. Stark cut his way free of the press. He leaped up onto the wall and stood there, breathing hard, sweating, bloody, with a dripping sword in his hand. He waved it, shouting down to the men of Sharoon. What are you waiting for, you scuts, you women? The Elhari are dead. The lost ones are freed. Must we of Earth do all your work for you? And he looked straight at Larrabee. Larrabee stared back, his dark suffering eyes full of a bitter mirth. Oh, well, he said in English, why not? He threw back his head and laughed, and the bitterness was gone. He voiced a high, shrill rebel yell, and lifted his stick like a cudgel, limping toward the gate, and the men of Sharoon gave tongue and followed him. After that it was soon over. They found Boar's body in the stable-pens, where he had fled to hide when the fighting started. The dragons, maddened by the smell of blood, had slain him very quickly. Helvi had come through alive, and Larrabee, who had kept himself carefully out of harm's way after he had started the men of Sharoon on their attack. Nearly half the slaves were dead, and the rest wounded. Of those who had served the Elhari, few were left. Stark went back into the great hall. He walked slowly, for he was very weary, and where he set his foot there was a bloody print, and his arms were red to the elbows, and his breast was splashed with the redness. Trion watched him come and smiled, nodding. It is as I said, and I have outlived them all. Arel had stopped laughing at last. She had made no move to run away, and the tide of battle had rolled over her and drowned her unaware. The old woman lay still, a mountain of inert flesh upon her bed. Her hand still clutched a ripe fruit, clutched convulsively in the moment of death, the red juice dripping through her fingers. 
Now I am going too, said Trion, and I am well content. With me goes the last of our rotten blood, and Venus will be the cleaner for it. Bury my body deep, stranger with the fierce eyes. I would not have it looked on after this. He sighed and fell forward. Boar's little dragon crept whimpering out from its hiding place under the old woman's bed and scurried away down the hall, trailing its dragging rope. Stark leaned on the taffrel, watching the dark mass of Sharoon recede into the red mists. The decks were crowded with the outland slaves going home. The Elhari were gone, the lost ones freed forever, and Sharoon was now only another port on the Red Sea. Its people would still be wolf's heads and pirates, but that was natural and as it should be. The black evil was gone. Stark was glad to see the last of it. He would be glad also to see the last of the Red Sea. The offshore wind set the ship briskly down the gulf. Stark thought of Larrabee, left behind with his dreams of winter snows and city streets and women with dainty feet. It seemed that he had lived too long in Sharoon and had lost the courage to leave it. Poor Larrabee, he said to Helby, who was standing near him. He'll die in the mud, still cursing it. Someone laughed behind him. He heard a limping step on the deck and turned to see Larrabee coming toward him. Changed my mind at the last minute, Larrabee said. I've been below, lest I should see my muddy brats and be tempted to change it again. He leaned beside Stark, shaking his head. Ah, well, they'll do nicely without me. I'm an old man, and I've a right to choose my own place to die in. I'm going back to Earth with you. Stark glanced at him. I'm not going to Earth. Larrabee sighed. No, no, I suppose you're not. After all, you're no Earthman, really, except for an accident of blood. Where are you going? I don't know. Away from Venus, but I don't know yet where. Larrabee's dark eyes surveyed him shrewdly. A restless, cold-eyed tiger of a man. That's what Vara said. He lost something, she said. He'll look for it all his life and never find it. After that there was silence. The red fog wrapped them, and the wind rose and sent them scudding before it. Then, faint and far off, there came a moaning wail, a sound like broken chanting that turned Stark's flesh cold. All on board heard it. They listened, utterly silent, their eyes wide, and somewhere a woman began to weep. Stark shook himself. It's only the wind, he said roughly, in the rocks by the strait. The sound rose and fell, weary, infinitely mournful, and the part of Stark that was in Chaka said that he lied. It was not the wind that keened so sadly through the mists. It was the voices of the lost ones who were forever lost. Zareth, sleeping in the Hall of Kings, and all the others who would never leave the dreaming city and the forest, never find the light again. Stark shivered and turned away, watching the leaping fires of the strait sweep toward them. End of Part 6 End of Enchantress of Venus by Lee Douglas Brackett
This story performed by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, March 2021.